see the trend that is globalizing at the moment. The EU was really a precursor, I should say, in that field of protecting citizen data and personal data. We see now that it's spreading all across the world. We mean a lot of things about the cookie-less world, about the policy that Apple implemented in iOS just to make sure that the consumer is aware of what's being done with the data, about the trackers and also the different laws, for example, in California. So this is a global trend and we have to adapt to it. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. As consumer needs in banking have shifted, Society Generale has acted with speed and agility to meet new demands and create customer value. Three years ago, the organization added a new role to the leadership roster and named Julian Molez the innovation data and AI leader. In this role, he has been working to guide the company to a value-driven data framework. On this episode of The Data Chief, Julian addresses changes in the banking industry, including higher customer expectations, tougher regulations, and the ESG revolution. He also reminds us that at the end of the day, fancy AI models and algorithms will only perform as well as the data that goes into them. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Frontify, Hari, and Workato use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Julian, welcome to the Data Chief. Hello, Cindy. It's a real pleasure to be there with you today. So, Julian, I'm picturing where you're joining us from, but tell our guests, where are you joining us from today? Uh, today, I'm joining from Paris, from the premises of Société Générale. So the headquarters in Paris with a lovely, shiny weather today. So it's a pleasure to be with you all guys from all around the world, right from Paris. Very nice. So I'm picturing the Eiffel Tower as you look out the window you probably had a really nice, fresh pan au chocolat with an excellent coffee this morning. A- am I right? <laughs> You're quite right. Plus, it's a special day because it's going to be a French National Day in a few days uh, on July the 14th. So today we have all the rehearsal from the planes uh, that we go through on the Champs-Élysées in a few days. So it's a very, very special day uh, for today in Paris. Oh, beautiful. I'll be scanning Twitter for some great pictures. So, Julian, you've been with Society Générale for almost eight, nine years now, but you're in a newly created role. Tell us a little bit about this role. Yeah, sure. This role was created three years ago uh, within the innovation department. So the innovation department is a group uh, unit that is meant to drive innovation across all the business units and geographies of Société Générale. Uh, and we had several key levers uh, within our innovation strategy. Uh, and among this key lever of innovation was data and AI. We'd been working within a group, of course, on data topics for years, because obviously within a bank, and it's the case within any company in the financial services space, uh, data is critical. For years, we no longer have physical assets to move 
and only working with computers, ID systems, and data for years. But the focus had been put mostly on data quality issues, data design issues, because in uh, the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, we had a real emphasis put by the different regulators on making sure that we could report properly our different duties with some good quality data. Most of the efforts that all the bank's team had put on data was on data quality. So three years ago, we said, related to that innovation strategy, well, maybe we'd like to put a bit more emphasis also on creating value because we saw the different fintechs and big techs entering also the financial services space and becoming competitors. And we saw that these competitors were leveraging data in their client value proposal. So we know we also had to adapt, not only being defensive by bringing good quality data for reporting, but also leverage data in a more offensive way to be able to bring more added value to our different processes and especially client processes. Yeah. So the position was created to make sure that I could help our different teams to know how to leverage data a bit more and to create value out of them. Yeah, so this is in a way you're describing a shift in the industry, the CDO role in general, Randy Bean, Tom Davenport, they talk about going from defensive data leaders to offensive, defensive, really just the quality as you described and almost only safeguarding the data. Offensive is more thinking about the value. So so you created this, or the bank created this role to place a greater emphasis on the value. How has that changed the relationship you have with the lines of business? Well, my position was a newly created one. So uh, the, the key things, uh, I'll describe a bit later the relationship with the business because it had to be constructed nearly from the ground. Okay. But the key, the first key aspect was really to bring a fruitful relationship with the existing CDO because I'm not the group chief data officer. We have a title chief data officer that mostly focusing on all the data lifecycle things, all about GDPR topics, data quality, data design, so many critical topics for the group. And I'm leading uh, the question of generating value out of data. So it's very complementary role and we had to make sure that it was a very fruitful alliance, uh, that everyone was aware of each and everyone's role towards business and that we could speak uh, together in a consistent way toward the different businesses. So that was the real foundation that I have to build first when taking the position because we knew that we would be for a time at least two people talking about data to businesses. And then uh, to answer more directly to your question, how did I build that relationship with the businesses? Uh, well, I built just like, a, I should say, a coverage team that were in charge to create a dialogue. So they are between two and three people just creating that dialogue and having a dialogue with each and every business unit representative. So first we had to create that network of representative being able so that each business unit could have a portfolio of use cases of initiative with a value declaration on it. And so that we can make that coverage uh, to have a quarterly dialogue with them to challenge, to push forward that portfolio and to review the value creation. So 
it took, I should say, a year and a half before that we had a representative in each entity and then put it that coverage in place. So it's a lot of time talking with so many different business unit representatives because I have 25 different entities in front of me. So finding 25 representatives and creating that dialogue. Yeah. So that is 25 is a lot of different stakeholders and there's the partnership with the existing data team. Is this also part of the framework that you've created to shift to more value-driven data and analytics? Yeah, the framework is a bit more systematic because you say when you need to drive such a large organization, because we say 25 units, but in the end, that's more than 135,000 people split across the world. So if you want to create that momentum with such a large organization, different businesses, different culture, you need to be quite systematic in the framework that you create. So the first thing that we did and we validated with the C-level was really to systematize a, a very basic initiative, but a common value framework to define expected value out of data and AI use cases. How can we speak the same language across the different Société Générale entities and make sure that we could report what we do as one? So there's been a real strong dimension of all the work I did for, for these years is really to be able to speak as one and to have one common language across the different entities. So first start building a value framework, very simple, having in mind that adoption was the critical aspect, much more than having very detailed value assessment of each use case. So we made a lot of trade-off just to make sure they could be accepted by the different business line because acceptance was much more critical than even details of the value assessment. So that's interesting. I want to clarify this because adoption can mean different things to different people. Adoption of a platform, adoption of evidence-based decision-making, or adoption of a BI tool. How are you defining it? Uh, I'm defining it is uh, the frequency and the relevancy of the different data that this business unit were declaring on their AI use cases portfolio. Because we first had the manual processes that was a quarterly reporting, so requiring to have 25 different discussion with the entities to say, well, please update your different portfolio. What are the key trends within your business? What are your new use cases? What, what are the updates on the value you generate? Uh, so you already could see and feel by the quality of the dialogue if people were onboarded or not. We belong to the general management team, which is already a good uh, success condition to create a dialogue, but that's not sufficient. I mean, if you're not relevant, uh, I have no direct supervision of this team. So it's mostly uh, management by influence. So you have to be relevant, explain the why of your approach, why you want to do it, and try to find a framework that's suitable to their constraints and their needs. So we needed to have a very constant dialogue with them and the measurement of the adoption was the quality of the time we had with them and the quality of the data they reported. Okay, good. Thank you. But maybe if I can complete, yeah, you have to go a bit further because uh, first we say we have that value framework, which is only a common framework, but uh, then we created one single platform to be able to declare all these use cases. Make sure that it's not only a manual Excel-based framework, but that we could share one place with all the portfolio, which once again, in a big 
group big corporate, having one single platform with all the data and AI use cases listed so that each and every one could share and have a view on what's happening in different parts of the business. So it was also one step further to make sure that we are one single place and was also one single place to monitor and make sure that we could track the adoption and the speed of value creation in the different business. So this one was quite powerful to share and to have in place. And then we went uh, one step further because we decided to create uh, a group OKR on the value generation by data. So to make sure that we have the proper governance and the proper objective setting at group level to say, now we have a framework, you are all convinced that it's a key transformation driver. We have one common platform. So how far can you commit to value generation on your perimeter? Great. So it's it sounds like there's four key tenants to this, um, Julian, if I summarize. One, it was already having very senior C-level buy-in to all of this. The other is that you're measuring adoption of the data and usage of it. The other is that it's all in one place. So everybody has visibility and then it's the commitment to value. Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, that's a pretty good summary of the thing and of the key different drivers to make sure that you create engagement globally in a global structure. As I think about the 25 data labs, the 330 AI use cases, that's a lot of scaling up of the AI. How have you taken it from a shiny toy to something that is data plus AI? What is your formula um, and some of the unique challenges you've faced here? Absolutely, because uh, as I've said before, we want to be one. So we have one platform, one framework, one voice, and we are the engine of that data and AI transformation because we are the one setting the pace, setting the communication, and making sure that everyone use the same way to declare. So as we had the chance to be a bit forefront for a moment, before the business line, we could impose the way we wanted to do it. And plus having the C-level support made it possible to make sure that we want to report as one being a group. So as you say, this enables the way to be able to say we have that many use cases within Societe Generale. And that's very important because sometimes it's much more decentralized. Yes. And so I'm I'm picturing one of your 25 stakeholders and you used the word impose. And so how do you, it still is a federated model. Every group can move at their own pace or they have some flexibility. So how are you balancing that or elaborate on that? Well, as I said, in the design, uh, it's really co-construction in the design of the value framework and of the platform. So it's quite uh, some time spent with the different stakeholders just to make sure that we are aligned, that we hear the different constraints. It's not a pure top-down model saying, well, that's going to be the group framework and you get to apply it. We took a lot of time hearing, call building, and then publishing when once we all agreed. So. That's a bit in a design process to make sure that we are all aligned. And then uh, it's a bit, uh, there's a part of constraint. We could, we could speak of freedom within boundaries. You got some boundaries that have been set. We agreed on them. That part of it is a framework. The other part is a platform and the quarterly reporting process and your portfolio. 
This one, we all agree that the strategic topic, so we want to create a momentum in it. So we all agree on that set of boundaries and we want to go forward. Okay for everyone. Then the freedom is you have the freedom to choose the different topics you're going to work on. You have the freedom of the intensity that you're going to spend in terms of AFTE or the size of your team, depending maybe it's a bit more strategic, I don't know, for capital market, a bit less for financing teams. So we just say we have a minimum of objectives. Uh, you have to respect the framework, but then the intensity, the topics, and the use cases you're going to work on are yours. Yeah, I like this concept of freedom within boundaries. So that gives you both the economies of scale, but the agility to run as quickly or as agile as a particular group wants to. However much they want to spend on FTEs, um, they have that freedom to do so. I like that model. Um, let's shift a little bit, Julian. So there's been some headlines in the last week about um, how the EU will rein in big tech. Um, GDPR, I would say for sure the EU was very much ahead of most of the other world regions on protecting citizen data. Now, how do you as a bank both service your customers with things like personalization, but also while working within the constraints of GDPR? Why well, you're right. We see the trend that is globalizing at the moment. The EU was really uh, a precursor, I should say, in that field of protecting uh, citizen data and personal data. Uh, we see now that it's spreading all across the world. We mean a lot of things about the cookie-less world, about the policy that Apple implemented in iOS just to make sure that the consumer is aware of what's being done with the data about the trackers so and also the different laws, for example, in California. So this is a global trend and we have to adapt to it. Um, we have to leave a bit the first days of the far west of the internet where every data was available and we could process them for personalization. And as a trusted third party, a bank has uh, mean no other choice and it's a real question of ethics to apply the stricter rules of GDPR and make sure that we are very strict on collecting the consent of the client. So we are very uh, big supporter of GDPR and its application within our processes. So it's something that we've been investing a lot uh, when the uh, regulation came out and make sure that it's deeply integrated in our different process. And we even have a dedicated position within the group, which is a data protection officer that is in place to make sure that the different processes of GDPR are respected. But even with that framework, those rules are imposed by the EU, you still can do a lot of things in personalization, but you have to make sure that your client is aware of it and has given his consent uh, very explicitly uh, to develop added value services for him, which we do indeed, even in marketing campaigns or personalized services for him. But uh, we make some different ways of consent collection uh, to make sure that we, every time we want to develop a new service, we make some batches, of course, but we require the consent of the, the customer and make sure we keep track of it and Im embedded in every process. Yeah, so with the consent-based opting in for marketing and personalization, 
Do you think sometimes this comes down to what is the individual's relationship with the provider and the degree that they'll give consent to you as a bank versus other organizations where maybe the trust has been lost or taken for granted? Sure, the relationship is direct. In uh, trust, uh, what does it mean to be a trusted third party? Because we manage very sensitive information and processes for, for the client and the way they're going to give their consent. We know that collecting uh, the consent is also a very sensitive process and you can have very varying results depending on the way you present it. It's not something very easy. We've seen, for example, in fa- the war between Facebook and Apple about collecting an explicit consent and the, the impact it had on the personalized ads, especially for social networks. So we know collecting the consent is not an easy process and maybe a lot of clients will say no forever. Yeah. But we have to accept it. Uh, that's part of the thing. Maybe we have higher uh, positive consent collection that non-trusted party, just like you say, for media or social networks because we are trusted. But still, we have clients that are opposed by principle uh, to personalization to say, well, what are you going to do with that? I'm already paying for your service. So why do you need to do more and to get more of my data? Yeah, or selling that data. I think it's it's from organizations who have sold that data without clarifying that they're going to sell that or they don't want their data to be sold. I think, you know, the other thing I was discussing with a data leader last week, I think the data industry has done a good job at collecting the consent at the source. But as we go through the data and analytics tier, and I think about how personal data gets represented in a dashboard, or worse, now it's if it's been downloaded into a spreadsheet, the compliance becomes weaker as we replicate data. Um, I guess two two part question: Are you thinking about the same thing, seeing the same thing? And then is it almost like we have a false sense of security that we really are protecting this data in all the touch points? We have very strict rules to access data within the bank. I know, for example, sometimes it's a bit of a complaint of the different data science team within Societe Generale because they say, well, you have very strict rules to access very sensitive data. May they be HR or PII. And in that case, uh, you need to follow a very strict process, not on just to have them in a technical place when you can make some computing, where you can run some analytics or make some machine learning models. But even though space are secured, you cannot download on your laptop. It's very secure process. So all the reflection on our architecture is to make sure that this sensitive data cannot be copy pasted and cannot be used in a non-appropriate way. And the same, we have very strict rules, for example, about emails, uh, outgoing emails or using uh, cloud services. Just an example for you, Cindy, but for example, we shared part of the brief of the episode today on Google Docs, uh, but accessing Google Docs within Societe Generale Network is purely impossible. The leaks of such sensitive data is impossible. Also, getting them on your laptop is impossible and leaking them from your laptop to a cloud service is impossible. 
it's what it means to be a trusted third party when managing such sensitive data. It's applying uh, the strictest rules of processing at every stage, uh, even though sometimes it slow down your, your ability to process them. Yeah, that's um, interesting. It sounds like you you have a stricter control over that PII data than some other organizations so that they're not um, exporting it and you lose that compliance. Another area where I think a number of organizations are just getting started here, but where you've been further along is with your ESG reporting. And I think one of the hardest things about ESG data is that there's not consistency. <laughs> um, so when you think about reporting on emissions and how that's tied to what uh, what level the thermostats were set in a building or um, how much paper was recycled, things like this, how are you grappling with these new data sources to be an early, early leader in this space? Yeah, you're right. So this ESG revolution uh, linked to energy transition, environment defense, or uh, all these topics are, are becoming critical from a strategic point of view. First, that's what we must meet. And we see all the different industries are embracing ESG and incorporating into their mission and into their business processes at the very core. So this is a global trend that we see. Uh, and as you say, uh, this brings the problem of having the proper data to make sure that we can run this process, but also be able to report to the different regulators or different lawmakers on our achievement and even to our uh, business stakeholder to make sure that we can uh, monitor and properly track our achievement on that. And we see that these data fields, uh, we used to consume financial data for years, and this market is very mature because we have a lot of established providers uh, with the different components on financial data, maybe on credit rating, on corporates, on, on financial markets. And now we have this brand new ESG space that is much wider than just the financial space because uh, the required data can, can apply to almost any kind of assets. And we need to find new provider and we have a, much, a market that is structuring uh, while some of our obligation are going to be very short term. So it's a, it's a bit of the problem, as you say. So our answer is really to find any viable solution to answer this. So first, we have structured some dedicating ESG data teams to work on this, uh, to work on ESG analytics or to make sure that we embed uh, ESG in our core processes. So uh, maybe I won't be the best speaker as of today because we have this team dedicated that really work on finding the best data sources to make sure that we can solve our ESG challenges. And what I know also for sure, so dedicated talents, because that's a dedicated problem, so that will be part of my, my answers. Working closely with the CDO and myself, because you also link to traditional process of buying external data and managing them. So to make sure that ESG data is, are managed the same way and in the group processes. And you also need to learn to partner with new entrants because this field is really boiling with a new uh, bunch of fintechs entering the space and providing part of the data, working on that, 
themselves developing a lot of machine learning models to collect, analyze, and uh, provide you data on this on this new field. For example, we have a, a French startup that become a unicorn a few weeks ago that is called Ecovadis uh, that is bringing this kind of data, collecting, analyzing uh, human with human and with AI models to bring new information. So we have to be very connected to this market to make sure that we can make the good partnership in the right timing. Yeah, I think your use of the word boiling um, is appropriate um, because everyone's trying to figure this out and there are not clear guidelines. So it's whoever's going to help um, get to better quality data, more trustworthy data in a more efficient way is good. But we don't want this, as some have called it, ESG washing or greenwashing. There have been some companies that have overstated their achievements so far. So we don't want that either. Um, we we started out talking about how you also now having everything centralized, you're able to report on some of the benefits of your AI use cases, and you have over 250 models in production. So what were some of the unique challenges that you discovered when you were scaling up some of these AI use cases? Well, we have some challenges. I'm sure many data leaders have shared with you, uh, but usually we say we have four key dimensions to make sure that we can scale up AI. Uh, first one is, of course, data management and data quality, because, well, it's a never-ending investment to make sure that you have the base data accessible, documented, of quality, that are the fuel to the different data products, may they be analytics or machine learning. It's a basic, but you never, never forget it, and never forget that it's a huge investment and continuous investment. Yeah. I want to capture that point because I think what's important, Julian, we actually had a guest on who said he thinks this is where some of the AI and why um, the people, the new machine learning experts, they have not understood enough the role of data quality. It's always about optimizing the algorithm and less about, well, wait, what are what data set are you using to train the model on? So I think this is an important point that you're highlighting. I guess maybe a question back to you, have we as an industry paid enough attention to that first step? Uh, oh, but data quality, no, never. I mean, uh, you, you're right. We, I, I was very proud when Andrew Ang decided to publicly speak about the data challenge of a model because he'd been advocating a few years before about the challenge of machine learning. And I think he's been the first teacher to so many people all over the world about machine learning. I was so proud I was talking about data quality and how important it was. And in some of my public speeches, I made some quotes because there's a huge difference be between what I call corporate AI and academic AI. Yes. Because academic AI, what we see, the key challenges on the most famous data sets, it's a fixed data set with hundreds of teams trying to uh, make their algorithm better and to gain a, a few points on the F1 or their different metrics of performance. Corporate work is totally different. I mean, it's a unique problem with poor data quality, and the model is not so important. Most of the time, you get good results with a simple random forest or 
or k-means or whatever, very basic algorithm from a machine learning point of view. But the key challenge will be how to define the business problem, the key business metrics to solve, which is most of the time not a machine learning metrics. And then to make sure that you have a proper data pipeline uh, that can go into production. So it's very two different worlds. So we're yeah. talking about machine learning and some of the most skilled machine learning scientists, they come and say, well, I want to do a lot of algorithms. Say, well, maybe you're not in the right place for that because uh, as a corporate, we have many uh, diversified problems with very many business problems, but a lot of data quality and go-to-production problems rather than algorith algorithmic problems. Yeah. And, and the data will only ever be good enough. Um, there's no such thing as perfect data, but it's recognizing that before you implement the model. So Julian, we got through your first foundational concept, um, your framework <laughs> yeah. here. What's the second one? <laughs> the second is about the data platform. How do you make sure that you have a proper data platform for acquiring, processing, and then uh, putting the model into production? Uh, because uh, I mean, at least for us, the key challenge, because we are not so much leveraging public cloud, we are progressively doing it uh, because we are a European bank and most European banks still are not making 100% use of public cloud solutions. So you have to define what's the good architecture for you uh, to be able to manage your machine learning solutions. So it's very important to define the, the good operating model to have a good time to market and make sure that whenever you have solved the business problem, you can then have a good time to market for your software packages. Yeah. So you said not a hundred percent cloud, but on your way there. And as I was just in Europe a few weeks ago, I have seen some both in um, London, Germany, and Switzerland, I have seen some accelerated migrations to cloud versus two years ago. Are you seeing the same? Yeah, the trend is towards acceleration, uh, but still a very cautious one to make sure that we know which kind of data and which kind of workflow we are migrating and that it's aligned with our status of trusted third party. And this includes security of the data, make sure that we know what's happening on them. We would love to benefit from the latest development in our research and development in the software engineering, but it's not a trade-off with the client data security. With the trust. So we, we are carefully watching at the different opportunities and make sure we add a good trust and control framework to, to be able to, to apply whenever possible, but not at any price. Good. Okay. And your third tenant? Third tenant, I would say strategic appropriation. And it's very key to make sure that the business knows what does it mean to use data and AI. I mean, we get a lot of buzz about AI all across the space, a lot of things about data. But in the end, when you're talking to someone doing a banking business, but I think it's the same, I mean, in retail industries, in the CPG, whatever, what does it mean when you're a non-specialist? What can AI bring to you? And how empowered do you feel to build data solution, AI solution that are going to change the way you work or the way you interact with your clients? And that's very difficult. It takes a lot of training, a lot of awareness initiative to make sure that your business is going to become the driving force of your AI transformation. Because the driving force cannot be the specialist, being data scientist and data engineer. They're the one bringing the expertise, but the driving change must be the business teams. So a lot of investment to do in that field. 
For that investment, do you, how do you educate the business people on the art of the possible? Is it workshops? Is it boot camps? Is it roundtable design thinking discussions? I think in three years, we have tested so many formats with so many different audiences. So I can share a few with you. Uh, we all started with the, the C-suite and the different top 60 uh, executives of the group. And for them, we had designed um, a three-step program uh, to make sure that they could combine any kind of format. So uh, we have chosen a MOOC for them just to say, well, you can go from a four-hour MOOC that was AI for Everyone from Andrew Ung on, on Coursera. Uh, to something uh, more in-depth uh, with some Harvard Business School. So they can choose from one another to say, well, depends on how much time you can invest at that period of the year and how much interest you have in the topic. Then we completed that with a one-hour uh, one and a half uh, reverse mentoring session with a data scientist. Oh. So it's going to be a one-to-one. -one. You can ask any question. Uh, we have some material to go through, technical and non-technical, but please feel free to ask any question with someone who works in that field all the time. was pretty good format, that one. What a great way to build a relationship, too, um, so that both sides get comfortable collaborating and talking, uh, finding the same language. Yeah, and to make sure that there was uh, no blocker and that any question, even the most basic one, could be asked because that's a topic very specific so far from what they usually practice at sea level. So just to make sure that we have the trust. So it was a very uh, trusted uh, meeting, just one-on-one and very, very fruitful most of the time. Yeah, good. And when we decided that to, to put them into actions and we say, now the third part of your program is going to be, please declare a use case that you want to sponsor. Okay. <laughs> so you've learned, you've seen, you've been showcased, you spend some time with someone doing that. So now what's the best initiative at your level? So now they have to commit. Yeah, you have to commit and declare in front of your peers. And it was the first uh, basement of our group portfolio. That's great. And did anyone back off? and say, no, I don't know, we can't decide, or they tried, or worse, they tried to boil the ocean maybe. So it, it was already a good engagement rate and we had so many people on board, but I should say, well, it was around 70%, so it's already a good one. So, uh, and it was only once again by influence, you cannot force people into those topics. I mean, they are very hard to pick, to apprehend, to understand. So you have to make a lot of pedagogic efforts and to make sure that people understand and well, if you take time with them, you can reach good rates. Yeah. So you're scaling AI across the bank, a, a topic that um, you've spoken about where we agree, um, but that is also so great, is explainable AI. And I want to share a quote that you um, had written in an article, explainable AI algorithmic techniques can help the model developer better understand what the model is doing and why. So what are some of these techniques or how does this help the developer? Well, there are many different techniques and frameworks that exist on the market. Uh, the, the most basic one that I think any, any data scientist apply today, but just to make sure that's the case, let's quote it, it's feature importance. Uh, how do you make sure that every time you make a model, uh, you have a look at feature importance and that you share it uh, with your business stakeholder? Because sometimes feature engineering is very, 
well, it's an art and a science, so you can go very far in the building of your different feature, but how do you make sure that they're still easy to understand from a business point of view and that the balance, uh, is it relevant from a business point of view? Sometimes you want the model to find some correlation that you are not sort of, that's fine. But you also need to make sure that the business is not surprised by the result. Yeah. And I think um, that's one of the things to me, it's almost like the feature engineering or um, a business person might call it an attribute or a dimension. If you're looking at credit history um, or, or assigning a, a credit score, evaluating somebody's credit, their employment history should be obvious. And yet we don't often, um, model builders don't want to share these things. They feel like they're giving away too much IP to say what were the features that went into that model. So do you think this is just a matter of time as we educate people on the risks, the downsides of AI, that people will get more comfortable sharing it? Or will this remain a point of tension? No, I think, well, uh, it depends with who you want to share. But for example, it is uh, forced within Societe Generale to share with the risk teams to make sure that you can declare and explain to the risk team that is a second line of defense. What are the features that you have chosen? How do you make sure that these features are relevant? How do you make sure that they are not biased and that you don't have any data problem on these features? So it's already part of the framework to make sure that you have this. And so you've implemented this, even though it's not required by regulation, it's a best practice that you've agreed on. Yeah, it's it's already, uh, in a way, it's already asked by regulator because we have some, um, it, it comes from the Fed in the US, uh, SRE 11.7 regulation on any kind of model within the bank. So we have to make sure that Every model we use, and could be credit models that are not even machine learning models, they are very simple statistical models, uh, apply very strict rules on the data used for training, for backtesting, for feature selection, uh, for different steps. So we've applied it to machine learning to make sure that we take into account the various specificities of machine learning. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Julian, you've given us so many practical frameworks um, for scaling impact, moving from offense or moving from defense to offense. Let's go to some lightning rounds. How do you keep up? Like, um, who are you reading? Who are you listening to? Oh, well, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, both French and English. So definitely the Data Chief and many other, uh, me, myself and AI for competitors or uh, data leaders, uh, innovation leaders, sorry, in French. Uh, so, so many podcasts that would be hard to list all of them, but at least two podcast episodes per week to make sure that you can hear in the voice of others what's happening. I think that's the most precious uh, feedback that we could have with very real life testimonies. So this one is very good. Uh, some key books and uh, following authors on LinkedIn and their different posts. So it could be uh, some people just like Beetle Schmarzo or people, for example, had a workshop with the people from Harvard Business School, uh, Karim Lakani and Marco Yancity uh, about competing in the age of AI. That is a must-have reading book in the AI field, for example, to, to know what AI transformation means in the corporate field and other more technical readings uh, about, about AI to make sure that we have the key things and about uh, the news. I think a lot of TechCrunch and other 
uh, tech-related side to make sure what are the new business model reaching out, leveraging AI, or the key breakthrough we can have on DeepMind, for example, just to make sure that I'm aware of what's happening on a research space. Well, Julian, I always like to end with um, a question as you think about what are you most grateful for right now? Uh, always a complex question, but I think what I'm really grateful uh, in life is to I've been able to live so many different experiences in life because uh, it happens that in three generations, I've come through very different social backgrounds because my grandfather used to be uh, a farmer in, in the wine yard. So he was making grapes. And so I had the, the opportunity in my lifetime to go through so many different social environments, so many different social codes, so many different uh things to share that give me a good vision on what's the important in life and what are the key things. So I love working in engineering with a lot of very skilled and intelligent people, but also remember of my different roots and what does it mean to live in different areas in different social environments in my country. So always very grateful to have the opportunity to grow through these different fields and in once a lifetime being able to see so many different people. Yeah, that's, I love that. Julian, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.